what really changed my outlook on like the the flair when I was in my 20s was feeling empowered at the end of the day, you know, like at a point I was like, wow, I know so much, you know, and I'm going to try to use this on my skin and see what happens. And I saw what worked, what didn't work. And by learning what worked for myself, I just became empowered. It was just like, okay, I know what's happening. And I'm starting to feel more accepting about what's going on on my skin. Welcome to Hashtag Skin Enthusiast, the podcast, a place for listeners to hear from the experts and soak in tangible tips to get that glow from the inside out. I'm Amy, a skincare educator, practicing dermatology PA, and beauty creator who bridges the gap between you and the industry. Listen in to the industry's top experts on everything from the best way to spot treat a pimple, which skincare ingredients we shouldn't be mixing, to the drugstore finds that are better than luxury price tags. We cover it all. Here, dermatologists, skincare experts, brand founders, and thought leaders will share their tips and tricks for all things beauty, skincare, and wellness. Think of hashtag skin enthusiasts like a coffee chat with the beauty gurus whose brains you've always wanted to pick. You won't get this kind of insight anywhere else. Your best skin is coming soon. Today's show is really exciting. We have Dr. Bryant, a California licensed naturopathic doctor. He provides a holistic perspective for his patients with acne, eczema, and other skin conditions. Today we chat about things you can do at home and in your diet to support your skin, the gut-skin axis, and how your anxiety might be making your face age. If you're interested in things outside of just skincare that can support your skin health, this episode is for you. Dr. Bryant, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I cannot wait to hear from you. I know that the audience is really hungry for this type of information. So thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Definitely. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I am so excited to be here. And your guest list is amazing. You have amazing connections, my friend. You know, it's funny. I I felt really lucky starting this podcast. Everyone who has agreed to come on, I, I just feel super blessed. And I think that's a testament to kind of having your community built first. You know, I've spent years on social media kind of educating and I've been able to connect with so many amazing people. So it feels like it's kind of all coming to fruition and now I'm able to bring those people to my audience, you know, on a wider scale, which is really, really cool. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I like to start every podcast asking my guest, what is your first skin or skincare memory? Yeah, so I'll answer both. Um, So my first skin memory is actually when I had eczema as a kid. I remember my skin would be so itchy as a kid, and my mom would try to do everything that she can. Um, So I'm first-generation Filipino-American, so my mom was using a lot of these like natural approaches that she learned from her parents in the Philippines, and it wasn't cutting it. Um, So I remember having to slather on a lot of like corticosteroids, which was helpful. Um, But then I I would always see my eczema coming back. And then in regards to my first skincare memory, I actually had really bad acne Um, as a teenager or going through puberty. And then my pediatrician recommended Proactive. Um, So Proactive was my first skincare memory. And I just remember going through that whole entire routine. I think it was like three or four products that I would have to use twice a day. Um, And I remember the sulfur product the most. And I just remember how it smelled, actually. Yes. (laughs) I feel like a lot of us have that memory as a kid, that sulfur product. is very, very strong odor. (laughs) Exactly. I remember I had... I was in middle school at this point and I was using the sulfur product in the mornings. And I was like, why do I smell like eggs? Is it, <laughs> is it, and why is everybody talking about this right now? <laughs> that's so funny. Well, but yeah, that was my first skincare memory. So it sounds like you, you kind of went through a lot when you were a kid with your skin. Yeah. So um, when I was a kid, younger, I had eczema and then going into puberty, I had cystic acne. So at a point, skincare wasn't really cutting it for cystic acne and I had to end up wearing Accutane, which helped out a lot, honestly. Um, And then in my early 20s, I want to say like in my college years, my skin was pretty good. I didn't have any flares with eczema. I didn't have any flares with acne until I went to medical school. And that's when acne came back with a vengeance. And that's when eczema came back with a vengeance. And at that point, I was really trying to understand like, okay, like what can I do as a naturopathic 
medical student, right? Because I'm going through this program, I really want to understand, like, how do I treat the root cause of my symptoms? And honestly, I just started to, like, nerd out on so much science. And I'm sure you've seen on my social media how much I love to cite science. I am so voracious about knowledge. And I ended up being able to identify my unique root, root causes and was able to really help out with my skin, you know? Like, my skin ended up clearing up, which is really amazing. That's really, really cool. So when you were in school and this was all happening to you, did you kind of have the inkling that this is the space you wanted to be in as a professional? So in regards to that, were you meaning naturopathic medicine or skin health in general? Skin health. Yeah. So actually, that's a really good question. Um, In naturopathic medical school, we are trained in both like conventional models and also natural models. And I was so interested in gastroenterology, but also botanical medicine at the same time. So like herbal medicine. I took so many advanced courses um, in both botanical medicine and advanced gastroenterology. And I just wanted to go down the gut route. But then my skin started to get affected. This was when I was in Portland, Oregon, doing my training. And I remember at that point, because I was doing so much research and really motivated to get my skin healed, that's when I started really getting into skin health. And I just became more and more passionate about skin health at that point. Yeah, I I think whenever there is that kind of personal uh, anecdote or personal component to this situation, it helps us become better providers, more empathetic providers. And and it also makes us a lot hungrier to learn, right? When we're we're solving our own problems. And and I'm gonna we're gonna get into that a little bit, but can you tell us for those in the audience who might not know what a naturopathic doctor is? Yeah. So basically naturopathic doctors are trained in both holistic and integrated medicine. So we're that kind of like bridge between natural providers and conventional providers. We're right in the middle. And as that as naturopathic doctors, we go through four years of pre-medical science studies in addition to four years of postgraduate studies. So we look at medical sciences exactly like conventional medical school, but we go a step further. We go beyond conventional healthcare models where we also study natural medicines, like botanical medicine, like what I spoke about earlier, herbal medicine, clinical nutrition, and so much more. And in some naturopathic medical schools, they're also taught Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. And beyond that integrated model that I just spoke about, licensed naturopathic doctors like myself are also trained to treat the root cause as best as we can. So essentially at that point, we're providing this holistic and multi-systems point of view. So when somebody chooses to see a licensed naturopathic doctor, their provider is going to really combine all that training to address their specific concerns. I think this field just absolutely fascinates me. And I think that there's a lot of room for us conventional providers to kind of incorporate some of this knowledge into our own practice, because at the end of the day, we should be looking at each patient, you know, holistically as a whole person. And and skin is, is a living, you know, vibrant organ of ours, but it's also interconnected to the rest of our body. So it's important that we understand these these concepts. So I want to touch a little bit on about acne. I'm sure this is a lot of the questions that you get um, personally on your own page. And we see so much talk about hormonal acne uh, on social media. It's kind of a buzzword term, but we know that all acne to some degree is hormonal, right? It's one of the factors that influence whether or not we get acne lesions. And can you can you talk a little bit about which hormones are involved in the acne process? Yeah, I love talking about this. It is like my jam. So yes, you're right. Um, Acne does have a hormonal component involved. And that's what we tend to think about as providers, you know, we think about these hormones called androgen hormones. And androgen hormones are colloquially known as like male sex hormones. And the most popular or most well-known one is testosterone. But there are other types of androgen hormones, like dihydrotestosterone and also DHEA. Now, in regards to those, what studies shows that these androgen hormones basically made inside the body go to the skin level and really play a role in the pathophysiology or like the steps that plays a role in acne. But in regards to the steps that plays a role in acne, I like to think about it in four steps, um, which kind of like makes it more digestible for people. So the first one is going to be excess oil production. The other one is hyperkeratinization or excess keratin production. And the other one's going to be bacteria naturally found in the pore and then inflammation from all of that. Now, in regards to hormones, where does it play a role, right? So we think about it in those two first things that I spoke about. It's going to be hyperkeratinization and excess oil production. But that's looking at the skin level. And we talked about androgen hormones, right? But there are other hormones that kind of like go deeper, which is really cool to me as a licensed naturopathic provider. So those other hormones that could play a role in telling the body to make more androgen hormones are going to be insulin and insulin-like growth factor one. 
And when looking even deeper, it seems like diet and lifestyle may influence insulin, insulin growth factor one, which is all really cool to me because as a licensed naturopathic provider, like what I said, we're really trying to identify these root issues. And by looking at that whole entire cascade, we have options that address the skin directly. We have options that could address hormones directly and those other underlying root issues that could be affecting hormones as well. I love that you touched on diet because for a long time, there was this notion that diet had no effect on acne. I remember as a kid seeing my doctor who told me, nope, you can eat whatever you want. Like it's the, you know, the chocolate isn't affecting acne, the sugar, whatever. Now the data actually points in the opposite direction. We know that there is, um, there are diet and lifestyle factors when it comes to our acne and our breakouts. So when it comes to our lifestyle, what things are we doing? What things are we eating? What are some lifestyle factors that might be contributing to our acne, especially if maybe we're an adult and we're all of a sudden noticing these sudden eruptions in acne? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when somebody's experiencing acne, when we think about diet, um, dairy is like one thing that a lot of people talk about, right? And I think there was a, I think it was a Nestle study or something um, that found out that uh, chocolate or dairy found in chocolate could be contributing to acne. Um, but something that people are really surprised to learn is that the weight protein found in dairy may be influencing that insulin-like growth factor one that I spoke about earlier. Um, and then in addition to that, um, I mainly think about like uh, the gut microbiome and diet as well that could play a role in acne. So we do know that foods can modulate the gut microbiome. And for people who don't know what the gut microbiome is, it's basically the microbes or the bacteria and all the other microscopic organisms in the gut. Um, they could be modulated by diet. And there is some really cool science that links gut bacteria dysbiosis or gut bacteria imbalances to specific types of acne. Um, and then, yeah, that's all that I could think about right now at the moment, honestly. <laughs> and for your acne patients, are you encouraging them to follow like a more low glycemic index diet or yeah, is that something that you tend to recommend? Yeah. So when people first see me in office um, uh, at the end of the visit, I, I usually recommend like a treatment plan to them. And at the top of the treatment plan, I have foundational recommendations to support overall health and wellness. And I always let them know that blood sugar can play a role in acne. So it's really important for them to start focusing on low glycemic foods or foods that don't cause blood sugar spikes as fast compared to high glycemic foods. Now, in regards to that, I'm really trying to basically tell them that, that hey, um, blood sugar can play a role in higher androgen hormones that will play a role in acne. However, I always tell them from the get-go, I don't expect them to be 100% perfect because if anything is too extreme, I ask them, is it really realistic? And most of them are like, no, it's not really realistic at all. And I always tell my patients like, hey, what I do personally is not 100% perfect. Like I have those cheat days where I have a cheeseburger and ice cream and sometimes I get acne, sometimes I don't. But I want to make sure that I do end up enjoying the life that I live, but also maintaining optimal skin health as best as I, I can. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's important to note too, that eating in this way, of course, is great for our skin health, but it's also great for, as you mentioned, our overall health. And the more you do it, the more your body and your appetite adjusts to eating in a certain way. And once you kind of notice all the benefits, I think it's more motivating, but I'm with you. I absolutely still cheat and, and enjoy my food. I, I am a foodie. I love food. And so, especially if I'm like in a, some sort of a celebration or something, I'm never going to, you know, limit myself. I'm going to enjoy the celebration. But um, I personally had gestational diabetes. So that was when I first started to kind of really hone in on a low glycemic index diet. And prior to becoming pregnant, I was I was a pescatarian. So I was eating a lot more um, carbs than maybe I realized. And once I started to kind of even out that protein scale and maybe a little bit less um, simple carbohydrates, I noticed just a big difference in my skin, my energy, all of that. I don't know if you do you know who the glucose goddess is? Do you follow her? Is she the one who talks about CGMs often? Yes, she does. Mm -hmm. So basically she's she does she wears a CGM and kind of evaluates how different foods affect her body. Now, of course, that's an N of one, so we we can't take that as a reliable and it can't maybe um, extend to the population, but she does do a lot of data searching and kind of um, regurgitating the data in an, an easier to understand way. And there's a lot of really cool tips there. I think you would like it. So one of them is that she eats like her fiber first. So even if that means like a bed of greens before she eats her carbs, that helps to blunt the spike. And so I started implementing a lot of that stuff. And it's actually some tips now that I give to my patients 
kids who I, who notice that when they're eating sugary foods that their acne or rosacea might flare. Those are just some tips that I like to give them. And so I just think that the whole the whole diet and lifestyle component is so fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And beyond diet, there's also exercise that's so important, right? We do know that um, exercise can support optimal, what is it, um, optimal blood sugar resiliency in some individuals, you know? In addition to that, we also know that exercise can modulate the gut microbiome in a beneficial manner, depending on the type of exercise that's completed, you know? So when we think about like diet and lifestyle, it's it's a combination of so many things. And um, like what I said earlier with my patients, it's just foundational recommendations. I really want to get this ball rolling to help build habits over time. And like what I said, I don't expect them to be 100% perfect. We're human, you know, we, we're allowed to make mistakes, right? <laughs> yeah, it's part of life. And I, I'm really excited to get into kind of the gut-skin axis a little bit. But what you just mentioned about kind of our gut microbiome and the different types of workouts, can you elaborate on that a little bit for our fitness junkies? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, uh, what science has seen is that excess extreme exercise can actually negatively impact the microbiome. So it's all about moderate exercise at the end of the day. Um, So yeah, don't work out too hard um, if you really want to support the gut microbiome. I like that advice. So I'll go with that. <laughs> I don't want to push I, myself too hard. Exactly. When I texted you earlier this morning, I was like, I'm doing Pilates. This is very Yes, gentle. I'm a huge Pilates fan. I I love the uh, mega former. That's like my favorite. And then I'll also do some like kind of light, light weight-based training too, uh, which I really love. But gone, like I, you will not catch me in a Barry's boot camp. That is so not for me. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done Barry's at all, but I did, um, what is it, hot cycling or um, oh, hot, yeah. hot spin class. I would mm-hmm. never do it again. I remember I was actually in Miami when I did it and yeah. I was like, it is too humid here. I am from LA. I'm used to dry heat. I, I can't do this again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I really try to stay away from anything he did because I have melasma. So it tends to flare the melasma, but I used to love a good hot yoga, but it's funny you say that because when in my old apartment, there used to be yoga in the park on Saturdays. And I'm like, well, this is like hot yoga because it's hot. It's like 90 degrees and like 90% humidity in Miami. So it is hot yoga outside. Oh, that's so funny. Speaking of acne, what are some maybe common nutrient deficiencies that we might sometimes, I don't know if you see this in your practice, but I see a lot of people taking vitamin B12 or whey protein supplements. Those are some things that like kind of I'm asking, but I'm not always, my mind isn't always primed to look at what deficiencies they might have. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the most common deficiency or insufficiency that I see in patients who do experience acne is going to be vitamin D, honestly. So vitamin D um, is a vitamin, but it's actually a fat soluble vitamin and kind of acts like a hormone in the body. And what scientists have found is that when people have acne and vitamin D deficiency, when those people were prescribed a certain dosage of vitamin D, it helped out with their acne. And scientists were basically suggesting that vitamin D may play an anti-inflammatory effect in the body and therefore playing a role in acne or definitely playing a role in helping out with acne. But of course, everybody's different at the end of the day, right? Because as a licensed naturopathic doctor, you know, I really want to figure out what's playing a role in somebody's unique acne picture. Sometimes it's vitamin D. I do see it often, but sometimes it's not for an individual. And sometimes it's gut health. Sometimes it's just hormones and genetics from their hormones, you know? So just to answer your question in so many words, vitamin D is this common nutrient deficiency that I do see in patients, but it doesn't mean everybody has it who has acne. And so for your acne patients, are you, are you doing blood tests to determine their vitamin D levels? Yeah. So I do like to get blood tests as best as I can um, just to determine that vitamin D level. So I can get a targeted treatment or targeted uh, dosage for that patient. And what's kind of your threshold? If they're under what amount and they're experiencing acne, do you supplement? Yeah. So the reference range is if they're below 20, well, depending on the lab, you know. It depends on the lab, yeah. (laughs) Um, I use Quest Diagnostics um, and I think it's below, if it's below 23, it's considered vitamin D deficiency. But I do like to see patients hit the mark where they're closer to like 50 to 60. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That was my question. I was curious, like what your optimal range is. Okay. And so we talked about kind of... um, whey protein, vitamin B12. Are there any other supplements you're looking for when a new patient comes in? Anything you're asking them about that they might have started taking that you're kind of, you have some red flags about? 
Yeah, just like what you said, whey protein is definitely like that thing I like to figure out if somebody is taking. B12 is one of them too. Like what you said, it has been linked to acneiform uh, lesions in people. But then vitamin B6 is another one too. So there's some really interesting science saying that high-dose vitamin B6 can cause acne-like lesions. So those are the things I like to figure out if somebody has been on um, just to see if it is playing a role in their acne. If it's not those things, I start to dive into those underlying root issues, which can involve diet, you know, but also lifestyle and stress and hormones in general. Mm-hmm. And how do you approach gut health in your patients? Is, is everybody getting a probiotic or is that something you kind of steer clear of? How, how do you go on approaching these patients? Yeah, from the get-go, um, I usually don't recommend a probiotic for patients unless there's like something really going on with their gut. So when patients first see me in the office, I really want to figure out what's going on with their gut, right? So I ask them about gas, bloat, and their poops. I love talking about poops. Um, I posted the <laughs> Bristol chart on my Instagram and people were just like, what is this? What is what is this poop chart you got on here? Um, but I do love talking about bowel movements with patients because it tells me about so much in regards to their bowel mo- or in regards to their gut health. Um, so I do want to figure out how often they're pooping, how their poops look like, like what is the actual consistency, you know, and if there's any changes in color. And if I see any red flags in any of those, I may recommend a probiotic to them at that point. However, I also recognize that probiotics aren't really for everybody because if there is true gut dysbiosis going on, specifically small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, it can actually worsen their symptoms. So when somebody has SIBO, which is a quantitative form of gut dysbiosis, when you give them a probiotic, they can experience worsened gas and bloat. Um, They can sometimes experience some brain fog from it. Um, And there was actually a science that said that, or a study that said that um, when somebody who has SIBO takes a probiotic, it could increase lactic acid and therefore play a role um, in brain fog in those individuals. Um, So Just to go back, I would just basically, for most of my patients, want to make sure they have a specific set of foods um, to support the gut microbiome. Um, It's going to be specifically like prebiotic foods to really get the ball rolling. So fiber is one of them, um, and also antioxidants is another one. Um, Because we do know that fiber can help out with the production of stretching fatty acids, which is very anti-inflammatory to the gut and to the skin, which is really cool. Um, And then in regards to fiber, it also supports the growth of like certain types of bacteria. I could note out on that if you want. Um, yes, like, please. <laughs> so it's like just ficale. a little bit. Yeah, so one of the bacteria is called Fecalobacterium prasnutsii. And we and there's really cool science saying that Fecalobacterium prasnutsii um, uh, changes are linked to eczema, which is really cool, you know. And then in regards to antioxidants, I'm really trying to support a certain type of bacteria called Acromantiamia cinephilia. That's been getting a lot of like buzz right now in the uh, internets. Um, but in regards to antioxidants, what science shows is that certain like antioxidant-rich foods can act as a prebiotic for acromatic hemosynophilia and therefore increasing the growth of this keystone gut bacteria species. In addition to fiber and antioxidants, I also want to try to focus on plant diversity with my patients. So there's this really cool um, uh, study that saw that eating 30 more different plants a week supported resilient and diverse gut bacteria populations. So if somebody is able to reach the 30 different plants, I am like cheering on for them, but for some individuals, it's a little bit challenging, but the more diversity, the better. I saw that study as well, and I've since then tried to hit it for myself, and I try to do it for my daughter too, but it is so hard. Tell me about like it. Like even we do we do the farmer's market once a week, and that's where we get most of our produce, and I'm like, you know, in season, there's only so many things at one time, so I try, but it's like, it's it's very difficult to get that many, but I'm always trying to get 30 plants a week, 30 different plants. I hear you. And what I found to be the most helpful is making smoothies, honestly. So I just, I don't know if you've seen my post about it, but I just put a lot of like weird herbs and spices in my smoothies, which doesn't affect the taste. Um, But that helps me get the plant diversity. Yeah, I was actually really inspired by one of your smoothie posts because I'm a big smoothie drinker. It's like one of the ways that I'm able to because I'm, I'm one of those people who, like, when I get busy, I forget to eat. So I really try to keep, like, my caloric a- intake up and my protein intake up. And so that's one way I do that. But before, my smoothie was always the same. It was, like, um, low glycemic index fruits, like berries. And then I would do spinach. Um, I would do a plant-based protein, almond milk, chia seeds, um, maybe some avocado. And once I saw yours, I was so inspired. I was like, wow, there's so many other things in my fridge that I could just be tossing in here and you don't even taste the difference and I'm able to get more diversity. Yeah. And honestly, I lo- also love smoothies because it's so much easier compared to like 
actually chewing and eating sometimes. I know, right? <laughs> Especially when you're busy. It's just like sometimes I need to drink my meal. That's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I know that's not the best for us, right? We should be sitting down, slowing down, enjoying our food. That's the best for digestion, but sometimes it's just not possible. Yeah, I, I'm totally there with you, my friend. <laughs> so what are some foods, some examples of foods that everybody should be getting for their skin health, even if maybe they're not dealing with anything specific? Yeah, so... I'm going back to what I said earlier. I really like to focus on fiber, like those prebiotic rich foods, right? So it's going to be like fiber and antioxidants, just because we know that those foods can support keystone gut bacteria species. And those keystone gut bacteria species could downstream or could play a role in downstream effects where um, the gut bacteria or gut microbiome is a bit more balanced. And in regards to that, um, some foods that I like to consume are going to be like flax seeds, chia seeds like yourself, um, sometimes oatmeal. I, I did it in my smoothies for a while and then it started to get too thick. Um, so I really wasn't into that at a, at a point. And then um, bananas are one of them, but I actually use unripe bananas um, because it's lower in glycemic index. Um, and then it's also higher in resistant starches and resistant starches can also support the gut microbiome. Um, in addition to those fiber sources, um, I sometimes add in some high antioxidants fruits. Um, so it's going to be like wild blueberries. That's my go-to usually. Um, and then I also add in um antioxidant, uh, what is it? Herbs. Um, I put in a lot of turmeric into my smoothies. Um, so yeah, so I basically get like the turmeric powder and then I get the bottle. I'm just like hitting it <laughs> so many times and get those, uh, get that turmeric in there. Um, but yeah, really focusing on, uh, fiber and antioxidants, um, just for general skin health has been really helpful for me and for messing with my patients as well. I love that. I'm going to try to start adding turmeric. It's such a specific taste though. I think I'm going to have to like get used to it. I like turmeric on my food, but I'm thinking about it like combined with my fruit and my smoothie. I'm going to have to try it and see, but I do love turmeric. That's so funny because I was talking to, um, Vanessa, she's the owner of the things we do, Vanessa Lee. And I was telling her, I love putting turmeric in my smoothies as well. And she said the same thing. Like you, she doesn't like the taste of turmeric. And I thought to myself, does turmeric really have a taste? Cause I have, it's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting taste. It's almost, I don't know how to explain it, but to me, the taste of it pairs better with like savory foods. So when I think of my smoothie, which tastes sweeter because of the fruit and the vanilla protein powder I use, I wonder how it would taste, but it's so good for our health and for our skin. So do you, do you think there's any benefit to using like the powdered over the fresh or do you think fresh would be fine? So fresh would be fine. Honestly, I just don't like using the fresh just because it could make it too fibrous um, and a little bit too thick, you know, and there are some things to really support the absorption of the curcuminoids or the antioxidants, um, the anti-inflammatory oxidants from uh, turmeric. Um, so it's going to be like black pepper, um, uh, so there's a lot of like studies saying that black pepper can help with the absorption of that. So I don't know if you'd want to add black pepper into your smoothies. I mean, I'll I, do anything for my skin. <laughs> I do it and I don't taste the black pepper. And also I don't know how turmeric tastes like um, because I don't really like eat it on its own. So I also add turmeric. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. <laughs> so how much black pepper are you putting in your smoothie? Yeah, I, I honestly just put a pinch in there. You okay, need to put okay I can handle that. I can yeah. probably do that. I don't think you would taste it if it was just a pinch. Okay, those are really good tips. I'm going to start incorporating some of those into my smoothie. So on skin health, how is chronic stress affecting our skin, right? We live in this world that is, we are all chronically stressed all the time, even without even realizing it. Just the way that we live our lives in traffic and rushing from place to place, there's this low level of chronic stress or maybe high level, depending on your lifestyle. How is that affecting our skin? Yeah, I totally feel you. So in regards to chronic stress, there are different types of stress, right? There's going to be physiological stress or emotional or psychological stress. In regards to what you were saying, it sounds like you're really speaking about physiological, or sorry, um, psychological and emotional stress. In regards to that, um, what scientists have theorized is that stress may affect skin aging through various mechanisms. Um, so there are different pathways that stress could modulate. So it's going to be like inflammation, DNA damage, and free radicals. Um, but we also know that when somebody's experiencing psychological stress, um, there's a gl- set of glands called the adrenal glands that could get activated. So the adrenal glands are basically these stress-responding organs 
and it sends out hormones um, and peptides. Um, but in regards to some of those hormones, the most common one or most well-known one that people hear about is cortisol. Um, and then the other one is DHEA, actually. So like what I said earlier in our conversation, DHEA could play a role on the skin um, in regards to acne, you know. So when looking at stress, it could affect skin aging in some individuals. Um, it also could play a role in like breakouts in some individuals. And then there was actually a really cool... 2018 study that looked at the effect of physiological or psychological stress on transepithelial water loss. Um, and this study found that when people had higher levels of psychological stress, they experienced more transepithelial water loss, which was really interesting to me. And in the same study, um, they basically um, gave human subjects uh uh, what is an anti-anxiety medication um, for stress and then checked the transepithelial water loss. And at that point, they had lower transepithelial water loss compared to when they were off um, uh, these medications. So stress could be affecting how hydrated our skin is as well, you know. That's so interesting. And that might play a, a role in why our skin tends to dry out when we travel, even if we're traveling to a more humid environment. I mean, obviously, travel on the airplane, we know that the there's low humidity in the airplane in the cabin but you know just the stress of traveling probably adds to it as well yeah definitely and honestly when i'm traveling i want to like keep my skin as like hydrated and moist as possible you know <laughs> yeah when i travel i am like slugging every night that i'm away because i always always get dry skin plus i'm in miami so anywhere i travel is basically lower humidity <laughs> than here so my skin always pays the price I when i get to where i'm going this podcast is brought to you by, well, me. Skinthusiast.com is your one-stop shop for all things skin and beauty. We have so many blog posts that you could educate yourself on skincare all day long. If you want a deeper dive, I hold your hand through creating a skincare regimen from scratch in my comprehensive skincare guide. And we have the cutest crewnecks for anyone who's in their skin era. If you're a skin enthusiast, you're going to love it here. Head to skinthusiast.com forward slash shop. So I want to talk a little bit more about gut health. And for someone at home who some of this stuff might be kind of pinging their ears, what are some signs that they might have some issues with their gut health that they might want to seek some help on? Yeah, um, like what I said earlier, whenever I see patients, I really ask about gut health. Um, so it's going to be looking at gas and bloat. Gas is basically belching or flatulence, like excessively, you know, and flatulence is farting and belching is burping. Um, and then I also talk about bloat, like what I said. So bloat is basically trapped gas um, in the abdomen. And I ask them in regards to the gas or the bloat, are they experiencing abdominal pain or discomfort with it? And how often is it happening? You know, understanding how many days a week can help me understand how severe their symptoms are. In addition to that, like I said, poops. Poops are so important. So if somebody looks at the Bristol charts, um, you really want to go for like certain, you usually want to go in the middle at the end of the day. Anything at the top or anything at the bottom tells me there could be something going on with the gut, you know? So at that point, if the patient tells me they're more at the top or more at the bottom, I want to figure out like what's going on with constipation, what's going on with diarrhea, and what could be playing a role in that, you know? And then in addition to that, I also want to figure out if somebody has nausea or vomiting in general, right? Just because um, those can affect the gut. And for those who don't know, the Bristol chart is basically some images of different consistencies of your poop. And you can kind of look at that chart and decide where you're at. One end of the chart is more diarrhea. One is more constipation. And as Dr. Bryant mentioned, you want to be somewhere in the middle where your stools are kind of like soft and snake-like. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of an optimal bowel movement. And it seems kind of gross to talk about poop on a skin podcast, but these are really essential, almost vital signs for our body that we want to be monitoring and making sure that um, we're taking action when we need to and just kind of supporting our gut health. Yeah, definitely. So important for every aspect of our health. And I do like to normalize poop yeah, talk as best as we absolutely. can, you know? <laughs> it should be normalized. We all do it, right? <laughs> It's totally normal. Um, so what are some lifestyle habits that we should all be ditching for our overall health, our skin health, our gut health? What are some things that you see with your patients that you're like, you know, this is just something that you're better off without? Honestly, the first one I think about is tobacco smoking. You know, in regards to tobacco smoking, we do know that it could really damage collagen, but also damage like 
overall health, right? We Everything. Think, exactly. Yeah. yeah so tobacco smoking is definitely that one thing I do like to counsel patients on if they are um, still consuming tobacco. In addition to that, if patients are drinking a lot of alcohol, I do like to counsel them on that as well, you know. So in regards to what a lot means, I usually refer to the study that speaks about um, how alcohol is linked to, or eight drinks or more of alcohol is linked to changes to the skin. So what um, this one study saw was that when somebody was drinking eight or more drinks a week, it led to facial volume loss, actually, in specific parts of the face. I'm trying to remember what parts they are. If, if it comes to me, I'll let you know. But those are definitely the two things that I like to counsel my patients on. Um, so it's going to be tobacco smoking or just tobacco consumption in general, and also alcohol use. Yeah, I think you know, in clinic when there are certain patients that come in and you can really see their lifestyle on their face and years and years of imbibing in these, you know, alcohol and tobacco, it really does take a toll on our skin. I mean, you can see it so clearly. So, you know, and it's, it's just great for your overall health to ditch those things. So whatever you can do to kind of, um, lay off some of that stuff is going to benefit you in so many ways and your gut health too. Yeah, definitely. So we do know that alcohol could affect the gut. Um, so I've been like diving into this a lot. So um, so a lot of patients um, who see me might have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which can manifest as like gas and bloat in some individuals and some um, other symptoms. But we do know that when somebody drinks a lot of alcohol or imbibes in too much alcohol, it really affects bile quality. And bile is responsible for really balancing the gut microbiome in addition to like several other things that we do or that the gut does in the body. Um, and when somebody drinks too much alcohol, what's, what scientists have found is that it could lead to gut bacteria dysbiosis, which is really interesting. So um, just to like echo what you said, alcohol could affect the gut. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think alcohol more than tobacco is so ingrained in our culture and it's such a, it's so normalized, right? It's, it's almost a daily part of people's routines and it's a way to de-stress and it's used in celebrations and, and a city like Miami, it's not uncommon to go out to lunch on a weekday and people are having wine. It's very normal. And so I think it's a little bit of retraining our brain to understand its place in our society. And like I said, I have nothing wrong with, with, um, celebrations and things like that but it doesn't need to be a daily part of your life i hear you like i'm totally echoing what you're saying like i am into celebrations as well um so you you can sometimes see me drinking a glass of wine but i I won't be like overdoing it honestly yeah yeah absolutely and we had some reader questions and one of them was what are your thoughts on seed cycling yeah definitely so in regards to seed cycling um i don't really recommend it often um just because there's like limited data on it but there is a lot of like anecdotal evidence like anecdotal accounts so when uh patients see me and they've already been on seed cycling a lot of tell them that a lot of a lot of patients tell me that it's been really helpful for their hormones and when something is helpful, I'm going to be like, okay, keep on doing it, honestly. And if you think it's easy to do, keep on doing it. But the reason why, like what I said, I don't really recommend it to patients who haven't done it in the past is because there's limited data on it. Um, and sometimes it's kind of hard, you know, for patients. You have to consume a lot of of seeds, different seeds at different times of the cycle, you know, and I really want to recommend things to patients that do have science um, that are evidence-based, but also I want to recommend things to patients that are sustainable and realistic. And if it's not sustainable and realistic, are you really going to do it? You know, like, are you really going to be compliant? Those are my thoughts. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way to approach it. And I'm the same way with skin. If someone comes in and they're already doing something and they swear that it's been helpful, I even if there's no data to back it, as long as it's not harming you, I go for it, you know, and it's easy for you to implement into your routine, then there's no harm. Okay, some rapid fire. I would love to hear kind of what are your unfiltered thoughts on some of these trendy things that are all over social media right now. Okay. And the first <laughs> one is cycle syncing. Yeah, so actually, I had to look this one up because um, I have really? never heard so of cycle you, before. Your patients haven't um, asked you about it. That's interesting. So they have talked about this, okay. but never called it cycle syncing. Okay. From my understanding of what cycle syncing is, it's using um, or doing um, specific types of exercise in different parts of the cycle. Um, and I definitely am for that. You know, for some of my patients, they have a lot of fatigue leading up to their cycle, you know, and I tell them like, hey, don't do like hit or berries workout during that time. Like if you're pushing your body to do something that it doesn't want to do, that's just going to wreak havoc in regards to like inflammatory response, stress response, and so much more. So 
let's do something a little bit gentle. Let's do Pilates, you know, let's do yoga, whatever is a little bit more gentle on the body that you can still do um, and get that uh, helpful movement. I think it comes down to being intuitive too, like intuitive with your diet, intuitive with your workouts. Like what does it feel like your body needs right now? And I think the more you start practicing these things and just overall supporting your health, you can kind of you really start to hone in on what your body needs at different times. It starts to talk to you in a way that you can understand. Yeah, and that's what I love about follow-ups with patients because like what I said earlier, the foundation recommendations are kind of like, it's a stepping stone. We're building these habits. And as as I get to like see patients more often, we're basically understanding like, oh, hey, um, you're able to do these things. That's a part of your habit now. It's very intuitive. You can really listen to your body. You're more body literate at the end of the day, which is so cool to me, you know? It is, and these are... These are just functional things that we will take on for decades and for the rest of our life and will help us to lead long and healthy lives the more we can kind of be in tune with our body and understand these things. So next one that's all over social media is magnesium supplementation. You hear everybody drinking like the pink magnesium drink before bed or or supplementing in some other way. What are your thoughts on that? I love it. I love magnesium. Yeah? Yeah. So I personally take magnesium. Um, So in regards to magnesium, there are different types of magnesiums. I'm sure that you've seen like just like going down through the um, supplement aisle. There's magnesium oxide, magnesium citrate, magnesium glycinate, magnesium L-threonate. I'm trying to think of the other magnesiums. There's so many different types, you know. So in regards to the magnesium element... Um, that's really supportive for various biochemical processes in the body. But the thing attached to it, either the oxide or the amino acid, um, determines how it can be absorbed um, and also determines what it does, the other function it does in the body. So I personally take magnesium glycinate because magnesium really supports with like biochemical biochemical processes. And the glycinate part helps me relax, honestly. Sometimes, I'm not going to lie to you, girl, I get stressed out, you know? So in regards to that, I want to make sure I kind of wind down in the evening and am able to get sleep, you know, and the glycinate portion really helps out with that. In addition to that, the glycinate um, really helps out with the absorption of it, you know? So um, with certain types of magnesiums are not as well absorbed, which can cause diarrhea in some individuals who don't have gut issues, you know? So it's really, at the end of the day, speaking to their provider about like what magnesium would be worthwhile for them to take. Do you have um, a recommendation for a brand on the glycinate or just any that you can find? So honestly, I bounce between so many different types. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I remember when I was in a naturopathic medical school. So full disclosure, I'm not paid by any of these brands, okay? Um, but I've tried them. I purchased them on my own. Um, so I tried Pure Encapsulations. Um, oh, that's the one I was, take right uh, now. I like Because I like how it looks like. It looks yeah. pretty, yeah. honestly. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and then I used Thorn for a minute, um, Thorn Research. And then I used another brand called Metagenics. Um, I wasn't really into that, honestly, because it was in capsules and they were tablets. And they were, like, huge, you know, and it was hard to take. Um, and then right now, I'm currently using one from Costco. I forget what the brand is because I want to see if it was actually effective. And it was actually really effective, honestly, and I'm still using it today. And speaking of supplements, obviously it's different for everybody, but can you tell us a little bit about like your own supplement routine? I'm just kind of curious from an ND perspective yeah, so what you're taking. I used to take so many, honestly. Um, so I remember I had a morning supplement routine where I would take a multivitamin. Um, and then in the evening, I would take magnesium. But then now I kind of just like pared things down. And now I'm just taking magnesium just because, you know, supplements get really expensive. And I really strongly believe that supplements are meant to supplement diet and lifestyle, right? So I don't want myself to be reliant on supplements. And I really want to get these nutrients in my food as best as I can. And I kind of like extend that to my patients as well. You know, I let them know like, hey, supplements are meant to supplement your diet and lifestyle. But right now, if this is what's most helpful for you, let's stick to it. But let's start building um, habits where we can start incorporating nutrient-dense foods into your diet. I love that answer, you know, because those are the easy things that are available to most of us are healthy, nutritious food versus, like you said, spending a lot of money on, on supplements. Okay, next rapid fire, even though we're both chatting too much for these to be rapid fire, but that's okay. (laughs) There's so much information here. Yeah, no, it's okay. What about everything being gluten-free? What are your thoughts on avoiding gluten? So not everybody reacts to gluten. That's a rapid fire question, a rapid Mm -hmm. fire answer. But the non-rapid fire answer is that everybody's different at the end of the day. You know, some individuals from what I've seen in my practice react to gluten where they have skin symptoms, where they have gut symptoms. Um, But for some individuals, they don't react to gluten. They're totally fine, you know, but they have an intolerance to other foods that could react, that could manifest like gut issues and skin issues. Mm -hmm. Yes. And last rapid fire, what are your thoughts on topical probiotics and skincare? So 
this won't be rapid fire as well. Because uh, <laughs> I do okay, the nuances, you know. Um, exactly. So in to There's this, always nuance in science. <laughs> so in regards to this, I was honestly trying to figure out, like, do you mean live bacteria or like fermented ingredients? So the, there's this. So this is kind of the argument, right? Because in skincare, there are many companies that say they have probiotic skincare, but really what they have is like a prebiotic or something like that in there. So it's it's kind of this misconception in the industry, I think, because obviously there's not many live probiotics in our skincare products. Exactly. So in regards to probiotics and topical skincare, like I love fermented ingredients just because I haven't seen any um, skincare products that have actual live bacteria in them. These fermented ingredients are basically to a sense postbiotics and postbiotics are basically gut bacteria byproducts. And it's really interesting. I've been looking to postbiotic skincare a lot and there's so many cool postbiotics made from bacteria that could support skin health. Um, so there's this one bacteria called S. epidermidis, um, which is naturally found on the skin. Um, but what studies show is that S. epidermidis makes like this like medium, this postbiotic medium that could modulate um, S. aureus on the skin. And we do know that S. aureus can play a role in the pathophysiology of eczema in individuals. So that's like really fascinating to me. You that's know? so cool. Mm-hmm. So interesting. What resources do you have for patients or for providers who are conventional who want to start incorporating more integrative medicine into their practice, especially from a skin perspective? Yeah. So what I, so I'm not like financially tied to them as well, but I um, uh, use a resource called Learn Skin. Have you heard of them before? No. Yeah. So Learn Skin um, basically is the... It has a lot of conventional providers who want to learn about natural and integrative options, you know, and they also have this really cool convention that I'm actually going to this month. It's called the um, Integrative Dermatology Symposium, where you learn both like the pharmaceutical component, but then also the natural component, how to really combine those two, depending upon what's presenting to you in office. That's so cool. I'm going to have to look into that and share it with my colleagues because I know that there are many of us that are interested in kind of this more holistic approach with our patients. So where can potential patients find you if they want to see you as a patient? Yeah, so I'm located at Things We Do. Um, the Things We Do is a clinic. They have several locations, um, but I'm at their downtown LA location, which I think you visited before. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I love I Vanessa. Think you posted She's about actually, it. Vanessa's coming on like right after you. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm don't put this on, the, right put on podcast, but tell her to say hi. Okay, back I to the will. podcast. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> um, but yeah, people could find me at the Things We Do in downtown Los Angeles. Um, but then if people aren't able to see me, they can always connect with me um, online. I post a lot of educational information um, on my Instagram, honestly. So that's my primary social media. And I've what's your handle? To, yeah, my handle is at dr.bryant, Bryant as in Kobe Bryant. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, we'll and put then, it in the show notes too. Perfect. And then um, I've also been trying to like dabble in a TikTok, but that's just too much for me. TikTok is another beast. It's like, and it's so different. It's even though it's still short form video, it's a completely different appetite on TikTok than it is on Instagram. And you have to kind of like figure out where you fit in it all. And then it starts to get easier once you figure that out. But it's, it's a whole nother beast. So a couple final questions before we wrap up. What is your holy, holy grail skin practice like in your wellness routine? What's something that you always do to support your skin? Yeah, smoothies. We talked about this earlier. Okay. Um, So I want to make sure I get that fiber, antioxidants, and plant diversity as best as I can. Um, But then, like, that's just the wellness aspect. And there's, like, topical skincare, exfoliation. I love Mm. it. Do you use a physical or a chemical exfoliant? It's a combination product. Um, Okay. So it's a physical and chemical exfoliant. What's the product? (laughs) You have to tell us. Yeah, so... Since I do work for them, I just want to let you guys know that it's a product on the things we do. It's called the Glide Glow Scrub, and I am obsessed with it. Have you tried it yet? No, I haven't, but I've tried many of your guys' products from the things we do, and I love them. I generally don't. I have pretty sensitive dry skin, so I definitely, I generally won't use a physical scrub on my face, um, but I do have a lot of patients who love a nice, fine physical scrub. I really, really like it, and I use it once a week, and my skin mm-hmm. has just been loving it. And then afterwards, yeah. I use, like, again, not, like, financially tied to this company, Skin Fix, like, their triple lipid peptide cream. Oh, Girl, my God. So I good. love Skin Fix. I, that <laughs> moisturizer, I recommend to almost everybody with dry skin. It's so good. It's so good. When I go home to Ohio, like, during the holidays when it's just bitter cold, I just have jars of that stuff. <laughs> I love <laughs> just, like, it. like, pumping it's the, it. <laughs> yes. It's the best moisturizer. It's so good. 
Okay, next question. What is your most underrated skin tip? Again, fiber. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah, it. So Easy. Honest, yeah, honestly, most Americans don't get enough fiber in their diet. And we do know, as we spoke about in this podcast, fiber could support good health, right? And we also know that um, our gut microbiome digests fiber to make short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory in the gut. And what scientists suggest is that these short-chain fatty acids might also be absorbed into the bloodstream and go to the skin, and therefore affecting inflammatory response on the skin, and also affecting the skin microbiome, which is really interesting to me. Um, but yeah, fiber is just so important, um, especially since most Americans don't get it. Yeah, fiber is so, so, so important for our health, our heart health, our gut health, our skin health. It's so important. Last question. If you could tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? Yeah, so remember how I told you um, I had a lot of like eczema and acne growing up. And during that time, I remember, especially when I was in middle school, it was emotionally affecting me, you know, and I was at a loss at one point and just felt so down and sad. And I just want to speak to 13-year-old Brian or 12-year-old Brian, just be like, hey, it's going to get better. You're going to get a flare after you get on Accutane, and that'll be when you're in medical school. And yes, you go to medical school. You won't be an architect, like what you wanted to do. Um, And it will get better because you're going to figure out like, hey, this is what's causing your skin issues, and you're going to be able to address it. And you're going to be able to help a lot of people after learning a lot of that information. I love that. I think as we get older, you know, skin issues are always difficult. But as we get older, we kind of learn where to place it in our priorities. And of course, skin health is important. But I mean, I deal with a flare here, like rosacea or acne flare that would have like leveled me when I was that age, you know, and now it's what I do for a living. And I'm still like, it's fine. It's it's nothing. It doesn't matter. So that's not to minimize it. But as, as we grow and we get older and we have other priorities, I think you realize, you know, I wish I could go and tell my younger self not to, not to take it to heart so much. Yeah, I hear you. And honestly, like what really changed my outlook on like the, the flare when I was in my twenties was feeling empowered at the end of the day, you know, like at a point I was like, wow, I know so much, you know, and I'm going to try to use this on my skin and see what happens. And I saw what worked, what didn't work. And by learning what worked for myself, I just became empowered. It was just like, okay, I know what's happening. And I'm starting to feel more accepting about what's going on on my skin. Absolutely. And that's why we're lucky that there's people like you online who can kind of educate us um, from our own homes. There there wasn't that when we were young, you know, and while I, I believe that there's so much value in seeing your own provider for your skin health, not everyone has access. So the fact that there's people like you out there, you know, doing the work and putting the word out there, I think it's I, more people appreciate you than you know. I can say that oh, for a fact. Because sometimes I'm just like, do people even care? <laughs> Yes, I think they do. They definitely do. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like we need to do a second episode at some point because there's so there's so much more to all of this and I have so many other questions. But thank you for taking the time to educate the audience on naturopathic skin health. I would definitely love to do another part on this. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, this is great. Thank you, Dr. Bryant, for coming on the pod. Dr. Bryant sees patients in Southern California at The Things We Do. And you have to follow him on IG at dr.bryant for all things skin education. If you learn something new, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And be sure to let us know in your review if there's a guest you want to hear from. And I'll talk to you next week, skin enthusiasts.